We're going to have a seat and get your Bibles out and turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus 24, as we continue through our sermon series through the book of Exodus. And uh, I understand the tendency on a morning like this with daylight savings time, maybe be a little tired, a little groggy. And so I want to ask you to just push through and press through. I think God has a lot for us. And I think we can also agree that uh, while we can't prove it, I'm pretty sure daylight savings time is somewhere there in Genesis 3 as a part of the fall. And uh, eventually Jesus is going to redeem that. Amen. Oh, Adam and Eve never dealt with daylight saving times. But um, so let, let me start by asking a question. Let me let me pose a question for you and, and really start to move our mind towards what God has for us. Have you ever made a commitment? Okay, listen, have you ever made a commitment that you knew it was going to be demanding to keep that commitment? That if, if I choose to do this, if, if I agree to this, it's going to be costly. There's going to be a lot of sacrifice. It's going to be difficult and it's going to require a lot from me. Now, hopefully you're not turning and looking at your spouse like, yep, there it is. Um, and, and if you do, okay, right? I mean, marriage is difficult, but if you do, hopefully you would say that it's worth it. Uh, for myself, I was thinking about this this week, and, and, and it actually took me back to when I was in college. Uh, so I went to NAU, which is in Flagstaff, and I was a part of a ministry where we would go out and we would serve uh, this uh, boarding school, Navajo Boarding School. is about an hour outside of Flagstaff, and a pretty neat ministry. There's a pretty rough group of kids that, that we worked with. And, and towards the end of the time, I just knew it was a dying ministry, and it needed to be done, and I needed to uh, to say, okay, we're going to cut ties. This, this just isn't working for us. And so I remember literally on the drive out and I'm thinking to myself, knowing I had to talk to the woman who ran this, like, I just need to tell her no, and that we're not coming back and really resolute with, within myself on that. And usually that's not something I struggle with in terms of in the moment and finding myself backpedaling. And, and so I remember her just like petitioning and pleading, like, we really need you to come out. And I'm like, no, no, no. And then what and the words, yes, came out of my mouth. And it was, you know, you, one of those things like, oh, you can't bring that back. And even in that moment, trying to be like, just, just gut it out and tell her, no, you're not coming back. And I just couldn't do it. And I knew in that moment, that next semester of going out there was going to be incredibly costly and difficult and demanding. And it was. It was a slog and it was hard. I think God used it and he blessed it. Uh, but, but it was a commitment that was very, very costly. And here in Exodus 24, we're going to see really the greatest example ever of a a very costly, difficult, and demanding commitment. And it's not on Israel's side of the covenant. It's on God's side of the covenant. Because what is confirmed here in Exodus 24 will require the ultimate sacrifice uh, from God uh, to reconcile and redeem his people. And so right here out of the gate, here's, here's where God's word is moving us this morning. Uh, this is where we're going to head for the entirety of our time. It's around this idea right here, loved ones. It's that God's covenant commitment calls us to worship, to fellowship, and to obedience. The covenant commitment that God makes with his people is going to call us. It's going to demand of us that we're going to worship God, that we're going to fellowship with God, and we're going to be obedient to God. Just so you don't believe I'm making this up, let's read Exodus 24, and then we'll pray and begin to walk through this text. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through the entirety of the chapter. Here we go. Then he, that's God, then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, which are Aaron's two sons, and the 70 elders of Israel in worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, which is everything that we looked at last week. It was all of the words that God had spoke to Moses on all of those laws 
that we looked at last week and then that he wrote down here at the beginning of verse 4. Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. What a moment. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. What a scene or what a series of scenes that we see here. And so before we go any further, why don't we pause? Why don't we pray and ask God to give us wisdom uh, and insight into his word? Pray with me. Jesus, Lord Jesus, we come before you and we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your redemption on our behalf. And God, we pray that you, through the power of your spirit, would come and open our eyes to see the truth of your word, that you would come and speak to us in whatever manner we need to be spoken to. And so whether we need to be encouraged or challenged, whether we need to be exhorted or reminded of our sonship or daughtership in you, whatever it is that we need, that you would remind us of these truths through your word today. And God, not only for us, we pray for another church in the area. And this morning, we pray for Providence Christian Center. Uh, God, for Dennis Haroldson and David Holitz as they co-pastor that church. Would you be with both of those men as they seek to honor you and lead that body of believers in a way that is pleasing to you? And God, would you open uh, that church's eyes to the truths that you have for them this morning as well? And God, for us, we simply submit ourselves to you now, saying, Jesus, come and do what only you can do in and through your people. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Title of the message this morning is God's covenant commitment. God's covenant commitment. And what we see happening in Exodus 24 is God is confirming this covenant that he has with his people. And, and the people of Israel are responding in saying that we are willing to commit to this. We are willing to be obedient to all that God has laid out for us. And, and so what started back in Exodus 19 with that very dramatic moment when they came to the front of the mountain is now culminated at the end of that time with another very dramatic scene of of, of smoke and cloud and fire and all these other crazy things, at least from the appearance uh, from the nation of Israel's perspective. But God is now culminating this covenant with his people. And really three distinct scenes that we see unfold in chapter 24. And what's interesting is that they're narrowing in their effect. It starts with the whole of the nation in verses 1 through 8. Then you have uh, Moses and 73 others in verses 9 through 11. And then it's just down to Moses uh, by the time you get to verse 12 uh, going up on the mountain. Although it does say that Joshua uh, was with him there. And that's really the first time we've seen or heard anything of Joshua in the book of Exodus. But, but these three scenes really break down or frame the text, at least the way that we're going to move through it here this morning. So let's just begin uh, to get into God's covenant commitment. And here's the first thing that we see, and we'll spend really a good portion of our time here in these first eight verses, but it's this, it's that God confirms his covenant with us, that God confirms his covenant with us. And so I want you to notice three distinct things uh, in these first eight verses. In fact, the first is this, look at verse one and two. Yeah, that part of God confirming his covenant with us is that we are to approach God with reverence. We approach God with reverence. Look at verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. <laughs> this next line is so interesting. And worship from afar. 
hey, come up and worship me, but don't you dare get too close. You be very, very careful. Only this far. And then he goes on and look at what he says next. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. God making this clear delineation of who's to come to where, but for all of them, that there are boundaries that you are not to come any further. Why? Because God is a holy God. And he's saying, you worship from afar because if you get too close, I will consume you. Because you cannot handle all that I am. We're to approach God with reverence. I mean, do you understand what this means? I mean, do, do you really understand what this means? Sometimes I wonder if we really get this. In fact, I think sometimes we get a little cute with this. We'll make, we'll make a big deal. We'll, we'll put a great emphasis on the friendship of God or the approachability with God. And those things are true. Those are good things. But we'll put such an emphasis on that that either we miss or we undermine the holiness of God, the, the moral perfection of God, that, that, that God is distinctly different from us. And sometimes I think we forget just how wide that gap is. That God is in fact a holy God and you and I are certainly not a holy people. Right? So God puts this standard out for them because if they were to come any closer, they'd be consumed by His holiness. Which is what we see later in the book of Exodus. Right? He's going to tell Moses, you can't see my face and live. Or you think about Isaiah's throne room vision. Isaiah, Isaiah sees the hem of God's garment and what's his response? I'm ruined! Like, surely God's going to kill me. I can't handle this. It's been said of God's holiness that God's holiness is not a distinct attribute of God, but the result of all God's moral perfection together. It is the sum total of all of God's attributes. So it's not a distinct characteristic of God. It's that all of the characteristics of God, all of the nature of God in some totality it is perfect, is without issue. It's the fullness of moral purity at every level. What about us? <laughs> Not so much, right? I mean, if we're just going to be honest. And see, when you and I begin to realize who God is, and then in light of that, we begin to realize who we are, shouldn't that change how we approach him? When I realize that God is this insanely holy and perfect and righteous individual and, and that I am far from that. See, see here's, here's what it comes down to. It's not that you and I should ever be casual or flippant. It's not that we should be joking or sarcastic. God's not our peer and God's not our buddy. He is the holy, sovereign, ruling, reigning God of everything. And so we approach him with reverence with honor with respect and with awe we approach god with reverence notice this secondly look at verses three through seven is that we respond to god's word with obedience we respond to god's word with obedience and so so god has said don't come any closer verse three moses came and told the people all the words of the lord and all the rules, right? And this is a reference back to all that God has laid out in chapters 20 through 23. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so Moses wrote down all of the law that we looked at uh, in the last couple of weeks. And then this ne in the next morning, he gets up early in the morning and he begins to build this altar. And there's kind of some interesting things that he's doing with the blood. And we'll get to that here in a few moments. Uh, but let me push this down to verse 7. So Moses has already verbally said this and the people have said, we'll do it. Then in verse seven, then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And so this confirmation of God's covenant, we, we approach God with reverence. Secondly, that we respond to God's word with obedience. That you and I are to respond to God's word with obedience. Now, now I want you to make note of something. Look at verse three. Moses came and told the people, what's that next word? Tell me. All. all. Okay, he told them 
all of the words of the Lord. You might want to just circle that in your Bible. Okay. And then look at what the people's response is at the end of verse three. And the people said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Don't miss this. Right. Moses told the people all the words of the Lord. He didn't tell them some of the words. He didn't tell them the words that he thought that they would like. He didn't say, well, this will be relevant. So let's talk about these matters. He certainly didn't tell them only the things that they wanted to hear. He told them all of it. We respond to God's word with obedience. Here's, let me just give us three things with respect to these five verses here real quick. First of all, you and I need all of God's word. Did you hear that? You and I need all of God's word. We need to hear all of it in every aspect. In our personal time of devotion and study, we need all of God's word. When you show up on Sunday morning, you need to have all of God's word preached to you. Okay, I heard like one super faint amen. I actually paused. That was a great place for an amen. And don't say, well, I just was afraid you'd do like a 40-week series on Leviticus if we got real fire. You need all of God's word. Amen. Amen. We will do Leviticus. It won't be 40 weeks. (laughs) But there will come a point in time. We'll walk through the book of Leviticus because we need all of God's word. I mean, if anything, last Sunday was such a great reminder for us, wasn't it? At least it was for me. You've got three chapters. So really, last Sunday, I guess, would be the culmination of that. So two weeks ago. Um, and if you think reading texts like that on Tuesday in your Bible reading plan is hard, think about reading that on a Monday or Tuesday going, I've got to preach on this. Like, what do you do with that? And yet God, in his kindness, what did he do? He showed us how so many of those laws and so many of those things actually point us forward to Jesus. They give us a more fuller and a richer understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done which is why we need all of God's word, loved ones. Secondly, not only do we need all of it, we need to respond to it immediately. We need to respond to God's word immediately. In the verse 3, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Verse 4, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then I love this next phrase. See, there's some things that happen with Moses and God that we, we don't know all of the conversation. In fact, in the next couple of weeks, we'll look at chapters 25 through 31. And that's going to that, that's going to be the sum total of 40 days worth of conversation between God and Moses. And so obviously there's some other things that were mentioned that aren't recorded. And, and, and this is one of those things. Moses, early the next morning, what does he do? He gets up and builds this altar. And so he knows, right? God has told him you need to do something. God's word called him to something and he responded immediately. Now, listen, listen, listen to me. The moment of conviction, the moment of conviction has to be the moment of action. Right? The moment of conviction has to be the moment that puts you, pushes you, moves you into action. When God's word calls you to something, you got to move on that. Now, pastorally, I, I cannot tell you I cannot tell you how many times I have seen the Spirit of God come and speak into someone's life, whether it be on a Sunday morning, whether it be through some counseling session, whether it be through some meeting, whatever it is, that where there's this moment where the Spirit of God comes in and is pressing in on someone. So God's challenging them in some way. He's calling them to repent or to change or to do something, whatever the specific thing is. And where the person upon, I mean, and they can identify it. I know God is calling me to do this. And I'll get to it eventually. Or I'll do it over here. Or at this point in time, I'll take care of it. And maybe some of you have said that. Maybe some of you said that even this week. Where God was pressing or prompting or pushing. And like, oh, I'll get to it. But see, here's what's so grievous about it. Rarely, listen to me, rarely, if ever, do people actually get around to doing that? You want to know why? Because if, if you and I could ever get to this place where we are comfortable ignoring the prompting of the Holy Spirit, what else is going to shake us from our spiritual lethargy? Like if you and I ever get to this place where I could ignore the Spirit of God, you're crazy if you think someone or something else is going to move you to action. 
The moment of conviction has to be the moment of action. When God prompts, are we willing to respond? We need to respond immediately. Thirdly, look at verse 7. We need to respond in obedience. So Moses has already told the people verbally all that God has said. Then he went and wrote it down. Now he's going to read it a second time. Takes the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then they add this next line here on this second go around, and we will be obedient. Maybe a little overconfident. Maybe they lack a, a true knowledge of their own sinfulness and the ways that they're going to fall short. Uh, they're going to figure that out pretty quickly, okay? Uh, but see what they realize. They realize is the importance of being obedient to the whole of what God has said. God, we will do everything that you have told us to do. Not just what we like, not just what we prefer, not just what, what, what we're more inclined to do. And see, really, loved ones, this is how you and I are expected to respond to God's word. See, when you read your Bible, don't, don't read it like a buffet. You, you, know, you know how you go to a buffet and like the, you, some of you don't even look at the salad bar? Okay, and then they even have like the, the vegetables that are slathered in butter. And you're like, no, nah, there's just not enough butter on that to make it worthwhile. And you just run to like the meat and potatoes. The problem is that's how some of us treat God's word. I don't really want that. I don't really like that. I don't really enjoy that. But over here, yeah, I'll, I'll actually excessively go in on this. And yet the reality is that we need to respond to all of God's word in obedience. So God confirms his covenant with us. We approach God with reverence. We respond to God's word with obedience. Here's the third thing. Look at verse 8. And actually, we look at verse 6 a little bit too. Uh, but verse 8, part of confirming his covenant is that we accept God's sacrifice on our behalf. We accept God's sacrifice on our behalf. Now, you have this scene. In verse 6, Moses is throwing blood on the altar. And then in verse 8, look at what it says. Moses took the blood that he had put into these basins uh, back in, in verse 5 and 6, and, and he threw it on the people. Now, in our modern sensibilities, you might be like, oh, that's kind of gross. Or, I mean, could you imagine if I stood up here and I had this big old basin of blood and I'm just like throwing it out on you? Some of you be covering up or running out or I'm never going back to that place. Those people are weird, right? Because it would be weird if we did that. The deacons would have a fit because everything would be stained. Um, and it's like, what do you, why, why would you do that? You just ruin the whole sanctuary. Okay, but listen, listen. As odd, as weird and maybe even as barbaric as this may sound to us, this is rich with meaning and symbolism. This is rich when we understand what's actually happening here. Because there, there are two types of sacrifices that are being offered. So let's talk about each of the sacrifices here for a moment. You have a burnt sacrifice. And a burnt sacrifice is where um, they would take the animal, they would put the animal on the altar, and they would literally just incinerate the whole thing. Just burn it to the ground type thing. And so the whole animal would be consumed by fire. And what it represented was an atonement for sin. But it also represented this, this complete dedication or this complete consecration of the people to God. And then that was different than uh, the, the peace offering or the fellowship offering, depending on your translation, that's offered as well. And that wasn't consumed in its entirety. Really, what it was is actually that was like grilled. That was the barbecue part of, of, of the sacrifice. That was grilled and it was actually served for dinner to the priest. And what that represented was this relational intimacy with God. And so, so here's what would happen is they would kill the animals and they would drain the blood. And you can read all over the Old Testament about various reasons and, and whatnot on draining the blood. But all this blood is drained out. And so Moses is taking some of it and he's throwing it against the altar that he's built. And then other blood that he's got in this huge basin. And then the people are standing there and he's throwing the blood on them. So what is this about? Well, let me just try to bottom line this. A bloody altar is always about the forgiveness of sins. Anytime you see a bloody altar, you know we're talking about atonement. Okay, atonement being a, a theological term for substitute. Here, it's an animal in the place of the people. When we get to the cross, who's it going to be? 
Jesus, right? Jesus is going to be there because he's supposed to be there? No, because we're supposed to be there. It's a substitute. Another theological term you might want to be aware of is a word called propitiation. That's a word that means that, that is, it's a turning away of God's wrath. It's bearing God's wrath. The bloody altar captures and represents those things. Okay, what about the blood on the people? Well, the blood on the people represents that they are now included in the covenant through the forgiveness of sins and sacrifice. Think back earlier in the book of Exodus, right? Because this isn't even the first time we've seen this in the book of Exodus, is it? Earlier in the book of Exodus, remember the final plague? What are they doing? They're putting blood over the doorpost. Why? It was a covering that the angel of death, the avenger, would, would come through. When he saw the blood, he would move on and it covered them from the wrath of God. And so you've got this rich meaning, this rich understanding that the Gospels are actually rooted in these truths. What are you talking about? If you have your Bibles, flip over to Hebrews 9 for a moment. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Because Exodus 24.8 is actually quoted and discussed in Hebrews chapter 9. So in Hebrews 9, you're, the, the author of Hebrews is talking about redemption through blood. But it's not through the blood of animals, it's through the blood of Jesus. And so let me just read to you a portion of this. I'm going to start in Hebrews 9 verse 11 and uh, work our way through uh, a decent part of the chapter. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, which we're going to get to next week, talking about the tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So the author of Hebrews is comparing the sacrifices that would be made to the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus would make. Jump down to verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Listen to what he says next. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. He's like, we're not doing something new with Jesus. The Old Testament has already laid out for us what we're supposed to do. We're just seeing it done in a better and more complete fashion. Then he goes on, he says this, for, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself, that's the book of the covenant, verse 7, and all the people, verse 8, saying, and then quotes here, Exodus 24, 8, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And he goes on and he says this, in the same way he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then he goes on and he finishes out the chapter talking about how Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And I don't want to go there this week because we're actually going to spend some time there next week. The point being that Jesus has accomplished this. Right, what you're seeing happen, this blood being splattered around, is actually a means of forgiveness that flows to the people. And so God confirms his covenant with us, and that we approach him with reverence, we respond with obedience, and we accept God's sacrifice. And so we move from that scene now to these final two scenes. These ones will come a little bit quicker here, uh, but these final two scenes. Notice this next in verses 9 through 11 that. I just wrote this down, that we feast in fellowship with God. That we feast in fellowship with God. Look at what the text says. Verse 9, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Wait, what? There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Maybe you're reading that, scratching your head, going, wait, wait a second, how, 
how did they see God and how did they behold God and how were they in the presence of God? Just a moment ago, God was saying, don't you come any closer. And now he's letting them come in. What is going on here? Well, let me first of all say that there's probably more questions than answers in terms of what we know about this text. Okay? Um, What we can't deny is that this is a remarkable moment. However, let's just let the text speak for itself. That they saw, it says they saw the God of Israel. And then what does Moses write about? The only thing that Moses writes about is what was under God's feet. And even that he didn't have adequate language for. So it's entirely possible that they, in saying that they saw God, that really it's pretty similar to what Isaiah saw, the hem of God's garment, and he was undone. We don't know that to be true. There's a lot of questions about that. But when you look at, of all the things that Moses could have talked about having seen God, I'm not sure the thing that looked like a clear pavement under his feet would have been the thing that I would have wrote down for all of humanity to know about. So it's quite possible that was actually all that they saw, but they knew that they were in the presence of God. And, and, and they know this because look at verse 11. And he, speaking of God, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They expected God was going to respond to them in a way that quite possibly would have required their life. And so while there's a lot that we don't know, what we do know is that this is a unique and profound moment. And it's more than just sealing a covenant. In fact, I would suggest to you that this speaks to a far more significant issue, a far more pointed issue than just, well, they saw God or they had a meal. See, to feast and to fellowship with God is to understand God's intention, which is to be with his people. Do you hear that, loved ones? God's intention is to be with his people. Here's what you have to understand. Meals in the scriptures matter. They're very significant, very important. Because this moment that you see unfolding in verses 9, 10, and 11, and God's intention of being with his people, it's actually repeated in other places in the scriptures. Let me give you, I think, the two most prominent places that we see this repeated. The first being the night before Jesus' death. What's Jesus doing with his disciples? He's sharing a meal. But it's not just any meal, right? It's tied to Passover. And then think about the language that Jesus uses at that meal. Like if we don't have Exodus 24, it's weird. But in light of Exodus 24, all of a sudden it starts to make sense. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 22 at that last supper. He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in what? In my blood. Not what's going on here. You got a covenant and you got blood that's sealing a covenant. And then they're sharing a meal together. See, what, what I would argue that Jesus is doing at the Last Supper is he's actually pointing back to this meal in Exodus and similar meals like this, and he's using that to point forward to a far better covenant that comes through him. That it's not the blood of bulls or ox or goats or lambs that's going to reconcile people to God, but it's the blood of Jesus that's going to reconcile people to God. And so you have this incredibly profound meal that shows up at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But then there's another one that I think is maybe equally important in the broader scope of understanding the whole of the biblical narrative. And it's found actually at the end of the Bible. And so if you were to go to Revelation 19, there is something in Revelation 19 that's referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at the marriage supper of the Lamb, essentially what you have, it's it's a pretty graphic image, but you have all of those who belong to Jesus coming to feast with him. And what's graphic about it is you're actually feasting on all the enemies of Jesus. And so that's kind of weird, but it's also a sense of judgment that's coming down for those who have rejected him. But here's what it says in Revelation 19. It says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is the ultimate celebration and the ultimate consummation of God's purposes. And so what you have to realize is all the way back here in Exodus and all the way at the end of Revelation, what bookends the covenants that God has with his people are these meals where they find themselves in the presence of God. See, because that has always been God's intention, right? What God started at the very beginning of history, he's going to work throughout the entirety of human history to bring to completion. 
Because I would actually argue that Exodus 24, for a brief moment, pushes us back to the garden of God's intention for his people. That for the briefest of moments, this, the, 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 this small group of men, for just a snippet, had a sense of what Adam and Eve had before sin entered into the world. And it was to live and to dwell and to function in the presence and in the fellowship that God himself would provide. Now listen to me, listen to me. This right here, to feast and to fellowship with God, to be in the presence of God, this is the longing that screams from the pit of every human soul. This is what everyone is longing for and looking for and that God alone will bring to completion in eternity to be back in the presence of God. And so when when you come to church and we talk about quiet times or prayer or worship or discipleship or things like that, it's not about do this so God will love you. It's about recapturing and leaning into God's original intent for mankind to be in his presence and to dwell with him. Now, listen to me, listen to me. The longing in your soul will not be fulfilled by anything but God himself. Are you tracking with me on that? The longing in your soul will not be fulfilled by anything other than God himself. You will not find the fullness of contentment. You will not find the the fulfillment. You will not find eternal joy in anything else besides Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that you won't love your marriage or your children or your job or your hobbies or those types of things. I'm I'm just telling you it won't last. I was meeting with someone in this church just this week, and they were talking about a vacation they had gone on recently, and they were at this all-inclusive resort. You ever been to an all-inclusive? Okay, so these all-inclusive resorts, like everything's free and you can have as much of it as often as you want. I mean, they're amazing, just amazing. So you you roll in, there's no prices on the menu and it's like, I'll have the steak and the lobster and the crab legs, please, right? And they just bring it all and you don't pay for any of it because it's just wrapped up in the price. And so he said this fascinating thing. He said, man, it was amazing, but after a couple days, I wasn't even hungry. And and in that moment, I said, isn't that such, isn't that such, an honest depiction of all the things that we'll chase and all the things that we'll get after. That we try to fulfill the longing in our souls, which will only be filled by living in the presence of God. So listen to me, listen to me, loved ones. To dwell in the presence of God is the richest aspect of your life, period. It is the richest aspect of your life, period. And some of you, some of you, though you have so much stuff, you feel as if you are impoverished. And it's because you rarely, if ever, find yourself living and dwelling in the presence of God. The longing in your soul will not be fulfilled by anything other than God himself. So don't raise your hands. Just between yourself and the Lord, you answer this question. Are you completely content in life? Supreme satisfaction. Wouldn't change a thing. And maybe, maybe there's a couple of you that are like, yes. But that is my life. I wouldn't change a thing. But for the rest of us, right, if, if we're asked that question, we're honest, be like, well, you know, if I, just, if I just made a little bit more, if I could just change this about my spouse, if my son or my daughter would quit doing this, if I could retire at this, right, there's just these little things. And the moment we go to that place, listen, the moment we go to that place, we're chasing something that will never ultimately fulfill us. Most of us, most of us are far enough into our life to know that the world cannot completely satisfy And what we long for in the depth of our soul is the presence of God. But far too often we settle for cheap substitutes and for imitations. Loved ones, God help us that we would be people who would long to feast in the fellowship with God. And to live in his presence. This is a moment of moments right here. They beheld God and ate and drank. And I promise you, I didn't care about anything else in that moment. I promise you. We feast in fellowship with God. Here's the final thing. Is we enter into God's glory. 
we enter into God's glory. And you're like, wait, no, no, that, that was just for Moses. I know it was, but just watch. The New Testament does something really cool with this, and we'll get there in a moment. But look at what God says in verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. So it's an invitation to Moses, not these other 73. And then what we're told at the end of this is that Moses is on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And then starting at the beginning of chapter 25, moving through chapter 31 of this conversation that exists between God and Moses. And we know nothing about the people of Israel until we get to chapter 32. And we realize that they have just completely gone off the rails. But Moses here is invited to come into God's glory. I mean, and then here's what's, here's what's crazy about this. I mean, look at the scene that's described starting in verse 15. Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. I mean, even today it didn't happen very often, but like, don't you love it when the clouds cover the sandias? I can sometimes where, where it looks like they're just rolling over from the backside. I love that. And that's kind of what it it feels like. Or I would imagine in my mind, this is like the cloud covering the mountain, just rolling over that. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And then check it out from the perspective of everyone else. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain. It's just this awesome, dramatic scene. Moses entering into this ominous cloud and it looks like it's like right out of the movies. I mean, who wouldn't want this? But it's not about this dramatic entrance. It's not about this dramatic scene. It's about Moses moving into God's presence, entering into God's glory. You might say, okay, what, what exactly is God's glory? People talk about God's glory, and I don't really understand like, what exactly it is that they're getting at. Okay, in short, God's glory is his reputation. In fact, the Hebrew word for glory is weight. Not, not in terms of be patient and wait for time to elapse, but wait as in heaviness or mass or whatever you scientists would define it as. And you always say, well, it's not actually just heavy. It's, you can nerd out on that all you want. I don't care. It's heavy, okay? But God calls Moses to come up to him. It's about moving us into the presence of God and entering into God's glory. And the whole of the text has moved us up to this point quite beautifully. That we're not worthy to be close to God. That God has us at a far, but God has a covenant promise for his people. And it's going to cost God substantially to keep that covenant over the coming years, decades, and centuries because of the consistent failure of the people of Israel. And yet God gives his word and the people are to respond. And God leads us into this place of fellowship and intimacy with God. And on the heels of that, Moses enters into the glory of God. And you're like, okay, but it's just Moses. I know, but check out what we see in the New Testament. Let me go back to the book of Hebrews again. This is Hebrews 4. Let me read three verses here at the end of Hebrews 4. So since we then have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Listen to what he says next. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God's telling Moses to come in. And when you get to Hebrews 4, God's telling everybody, okay, you can come in. Not because you're worthy, but because Christ is worthy and because he has paid the price. And so what was reserved only for Moses is now made available to all of us to enter into the presence of God. And not just to enter, but with confidence to come in. The people of the Old Testament didn't have that freedom. They didn't have that option. We enter into God's glory. You might say, yeah, that, I get it. That makes sense. That's kind of big picture. What does that look like on a Tuesday? Let me give you four things here, and we'll land the plane with these four things. Ways that you and I enter into God's glory. I'll just tell you right now, these are all things you've heard plenty of times before. Here you go. Here's the first. You want to enter into God's glory? Read your Bible. Really? That's the first one? Yep. Sure is. Read your Bible. When you go into the presence of someone else, you you engage or interact or speak with that person. You want to enter into God's presence, you read his word. Read what he said. 
Do what He's told us to do. Unfold who, he's it, who He is. There's this fascinating thing that we do, and I don't know why it is. But people will be like, I just don't feel like God's speaking to me. Like, what are you reading in the Scriptures? Well, I haven't really been in the Scriptures. Yeah, you're right. God's not speaking to you. But it's not His fault. Read your Bible. Or we'll do this other really weird thing where, where we've got some big decision coming up in our life or, or, or this really pressing matter. And it's like we want God to appear in, in bodily form and be like, do this or don't do that or go this way. And people are like, I, I just feel like I'm struggling to figure out what God's intention is for me. It's like, well, what are you seeing in his word? Well, I'm not really reading it. Listen, if you won't do the simple thing, why in the world would God come and do a special thing? Read the Bible. Secondly, I'm going to blow your mind again. Here you go. You ready for this? Pray. I know all of this. Well, if you knew all of this, then you would already be living in God's glory and in his presence. Pray. I, I, I cannot express strongly enough how wild it is that at any point in time, you and I can come into God's presence. In fact, next week, what we'll see with the tabernacle is just how limiting that was. At any moment, at any point in time, you can come into God's presence. At work or at home, you can be driving your car in the shower. I mean, it's crazy to think about that you could be on Facebook and still be in God's presence. I'd prefer you go into God's presence before you go to Facebook so you don't point, post something just ridiculous that you regret, okay? But even in that moment, you can be in God's presence. I'll just... I'll be honest about myself that in my life, I, am, I feel like I'm just at the very beginning starting point of figuring out about what it really is to pray without ceasing. I feel like I know so little about that, and I've got so much to learn on that. I, I am comforted by Tim Keller. Tim Keller, one of the most prominent pastors in our day and age. Tim Keller wrote a book on prayer. You want to know what the opening line of that book was? He said, in the second half of my adult life, I discovered prayer. And I read that and I just said, thank you, God. Like if Tim Keller took him to the second half of his adult life, there's hope for all of us. I'm just barely beginning to even have a sense of what's going on here. And, and he, I can tell you this. It's not being holed up in your closet for hours or weeks at a time, though there's places for that. It's that God is constantly on our mind. That, that, that I see a red light through the lens of how God sees it, that I see that slight from a coworker through the lens that God would see it, that I see that random inconvenience from that person at the grocery store through the lens by which God would see it. And I begin to interact with God on that. It's part of entering into God's glory and living in his presence. Here's the third thing. I mean, these are just so revolutionary, aren't they? Uh, here's the third thing. This one's going to really blow your mind. It's worship. Worship. Now, we do this thing with worship where we want to make it really narrow and we go, well, it's only singing. Worship is far more than singing, but it's certainly not less than that. The primary form of worship that we see expressed in the scriptures is through song. It's not the only way that you worship. Listen to music that's going to lead you to worship. Sing in a manner that's worshipful and pleasing to the Lord. That's certainly part of it. But then there's no other shortage of ways that will lead you to worship. I'll, I'll give you one example from my life. When I get into creation, I can't help but worship. Every time I go on a hike, God becomes more glorious. It's not that he's actually more glorious. I just see more of it. So for me, I love being outside because God just gets bigger and more profound and better. Or, or here's, here's an honest confession. I'm a huge nerd. I just am. Some of you are like, yeah, I know. We knew that. Okay. Um, but I love, man, I just love nature documentaries. And so for me, like, man, the, the perfect afternoon, relaxing afternoon is give me two hours uninterrupted with, and it, they got to be British. Like none of these like American commentators or narrators, their voices are lame. Give me a British guy. Right. Uh, but talking about the earth and showing just these insane images Planet Earth, two hours uninterrupted, like, I think I'm in heaven, okay? But what I found myself doing is I watched those, and you see something about a wolf or a seal or a polar bear or the ocean or whatever. You just begin to marvel at God's creation. 
So I'm sitting here, there's an irony that I'm watching nature documentaries that want to mock a creator, and yet their, their documentary makes me worship the creator. I love that. Maybe I should write them and tell them, hey, you guys failed. But um, anyway, right, worship. Here's the final thing. And this is far from exhaustive, right? But just trying to be practical. Express thanks. Express thanks. Thank God for what he's doing. Pay attention to what God is doing and tell him thank you for that. So this, this past week, I, I honestly couldn't even put my finger on it if I tried and, and just thinking about this, but this past week I just found it to be highly frustrating and discouraging and disappointing in so many different ways. And, and, and I'm doing sermon prep, and so Wednesday evening, I'm finishing up here, and the, the twins are on a swim team, so multiple nights a week over at the aquatic center, and often I'll drop them off, go work at the library, and then pick them up when they're done. And so Wednesday evening, go to the library, and I'm just really discouraged, really frustrated on some different things. And, and, and I was looking at this particular thing, and I go, you know what? I, I just need to take a few minutes and try to thank God uh, just for the last month. Let me see if I can find things in the last month. And the first few things are kind of slow, but then what happens? It's like the dam breaks and the wa- it just all comes rushing out. And in a matter of 10 minutes, literally in a matter of 10 minutes, I went from this place of frustration and discouragement and disappointment to being someone totally radically changed. Why? Because you cannot come into the presence of God and not be changed. And it, wa- it wasn't the issue of saying thanks about a couple of things, though that certainly doesn't hurt, but it was being drawn into the presence of God. And as you and I are drawn into the presence of God, whether it's through reading our Bible or praying or worship or expressing gratitude and thanks or praise or any host of other things, God changes us. And so in this, what was reserved solely for Moses, you and I can enter into God's glory, which is insane. God's covenant commitment calls us to worship, to fellowship, to obedience. And God help us. God help us that we would answer that call according to his grace and his mercy. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your covenant. God, we thank you that you're faithful. God, we thank you that you didn't walk away, that you didn't give up, that you didn't say, I'm done. God, we thank you that you're a good God who's accomplishing a good work in your people. God, thank you that you confirmed this covenant until you chose to send your son to enact a better one. And so we thank you for Exodus 24 and how it gives us just a little bit of a bigger insight, a little more of a glimpse into the fullness of who Jesus is. And so God, would you help us? God, would you help us to live in your presence? to live in the fullness of all that it means to be your people. God, that you call us to worship, you call us to fellowship, you call us to obedience. And God, help us, that's exactly who we would be. Pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.